0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians five fifteen to twenty one. This is the word of God. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day we have that we can gather together here this morning. We thank you for the blessing that is each day that we can come here and worship you and meet and greet with one another, to love one another, to share with one another. And may this hour today be an hour that honors and glorifies you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Imagine if I had an opportunity to talk with an unbeliever and the person asked a variety of questions such as, what does it take to become a Christian? What does it mean to become a believer? And I'd go through and answer some questions. They may ask questions about the verifiability of the New Testament, so I would answer some of those questions. They may ask questions about the historicity of the resurrection, and we'd answer those questions. And then the person might ask the question, well, tell me, what is the Christian life really like? And if I were answering that question, I would tell them that the Christian life is like a day at the beach. And most Christians are living their life like they are at the beach. We think about the beach, how peaceful it is, how sunny it is, how warm it makes us feel, It relieves all of our tensions and all of our burdens. You think about perhaps being on the south of France, the wonderful Mediterranean, the beautiful day. And if that's how you're living the Christian life, then you're on the wrong beach. Because the Christian life is not being in the south of France. It's like being in the north of France on D-Day, June 6, 1944. That was the day that the Allied soldiers during World War II finally made their way back to Europe. The story that's told of D-Day, most of you know. Some of you perhaps fought there. I don't know, Bill. But D-Day was a day when the Allied soldiers on 5,000 landing crafts crossed the English Channel onto Normandy Beach and the other beaches to storm and fight against a fierce enemy, against an enemy who was bent on their destruction. And on that day, some 5,000 soldiers died immediately, And there's stories that are told by those who survived, and they talk about the messages they heard. They were told at 6.30 a.m. to storm the beaches, get ready to go. We're now letting all the boats loose. And one message heard by many, many that day was also the words, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. See, these men knew what they were getting into. They were getting into the battle to end all battles, perhaps even their own life. And as they made their way, they knew the consequences and, the, and the, the, the meaning of what this day was. And the book of Ephesians is a lot like that in many ways. Paul is talking about what it means to be a Christian and that the Christian life really is a battle. We're not simply engaged in a nice, peaceful life where all the comforts come to us, but instead we are engaged in a battle to end all battles. And when you sign up to become a believer you now recognize and sign up for the battle that Christ has called us to. In the book of Ephesians, Paul has, in a number of places, talked about spiritual warfare. We think of Ephesians chapter 6, which Lars will get to in a, a few weeks, that is the classic passage on the fact that we are in a spiritual warfare. But the book of Ephesians throughout has mentioned this many, many times. And so if you think about going to the beach with a beach towel and a pool noodle then you're going to the wrong beach. Now, what Paul talks about in Ephesians is the same thing that Jesus was talking about. If you think back to Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus gives the words and says, "Wide is the gate and easy is the path that leads to destruction, and many go that way, but narrow is the path and difficult, narrow is the gate and difficult is the path that leads to life, and few go that way." Jesus was telling his disciples that in our battle for the kingdom of God it's going to be difficult and not many want to go that way. Jesus also gave the parables in Matthew chapter 13 and you remember the parable where he talks about the one who's casting seeds and some seeds land on the hard path some seeds land on on rocky soil some seeds land in the weeds and some seeds land on the good soil. And he says that The seeds that land on the rocky path are are taken by the birds that come and eat them. And that's the evil one that comes to destroy you. Others land on hard ground and and are destroyed by the sun, by the intensity. and And they're destroyed because they can grow no roots. And so that's why they lose out. Others are choked out by the weeds. And he explains that that's the cares of this life and the things that we get involved in in this life. But some seeds land on good soil. And those are the ones that bring forth fruit in bounty. And so that's the message that Jesus left with his disciples about what the Christian life is. We're all out there casting seeds to see if we can't get some to land on good soil. We ourselves may be like a seed. And so the challenge we have today is to ask whether or not we ourselves are seeds planted on good soil. Or have we allowed weeds to grow up in our life and surround us that might be in some way inhibiting our growth and our productivity? Now, many of you, all of you, have heard of C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book, Mere Christianity. And I just want to read a few words from uh, this book that, that I think illustrate kind of what Paul is getting at here. Lewis writes Imagine yourself as a living house, God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right, and stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt abominably, and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, you thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. What Lewis is talking about is the fact that we as Christians, when we became a Christian, then receive Christ and he's now living in us. And he's now trying to remake us. Now, we feel like our life might be like trying to build a house construct a house in a war zone. We know how hard that can be. As soon as we get something built, it seems somebody comes to sabotage it. And that's the way the Christian life can feel to us. And that's the way it is. And so if you feel like your life is like living on a nice sunny beach, then you're just not following the Christian life the way Christ called us to. Now, in this passage that we have from Paul here in Ephesians chapter five, he talks about the meaning of life now as we get down to it. And let me just kind of hit the the, the three points we want to make today as we go to them. First, live life with wise urgency. That's a message that Paul has for us, just to make it plain up front. Live life with wise urgency. Think about what you're doing and live it that way. Don't count the days, make the days count. That's a simple message that Paul is giving us here. Make every day in your life count. The second thing he talks about is to live life in step with the Spirit. How do we live the Christian life? It is as the spirit fills us and directs us in our life that we're now able to live the Christian life in the right way. The message there being the best things in life aren't things. When we one day attend our own funeral, we may not know what people are saying. But what they're not going to be talking about is the things that you bought in life. They're going to be talking about who you were as a person. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And the third lesson we learn is in uh, verse 19. Life lived in a spirit-controlled, live life in a spirit-controlled culture. And that's what this church is about. It's about living life in a spirit-controlled culture. Now, as we think about this, let's uh, begin with the first point. Live life with wise urgency. We have to make wise decisions in life. Paul writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. When he talks about these words, look carefully, the words there literally are see, look at where you're walking. See, our life has to be intentional on where we put our feet. In each step of life, this metaphor kind of plays out, in each step of life that we take, are we putting our feet in places consistent with what God's word has to say and tell us how to live? Is that how we're walking? Now, most of us can walk down a sidewalk and not fear of falling over into the street or under the grass, Right? I mean, I, I walk down sidewalks all the time, and I never think about, oh, be careful. You might fall into the street. And so we can walk on a sidewalk that's only two feet wide and, and not even think about it. But imagine now if you're not on a two-foot-high sidewalk, but it's, you're on the top of a 60-foot-high wall. All of a sudden, that two feet just doesn't seem as wide as it used to on the sidewalk. And so if you're walking on top of a 60-foot wall, and I had a chance to do this uh, down in Alabama some years ago, Your steps are far more careful. You're paying far more attention to where you put each step because you know that if you do fall, there's bad consequences that can come out of that. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Look at your life and how you live it. Look carefully then how you walk, not as an unwise person, but as wise. Where are you placing your feet? How are you living? What are you doing? And so in all of this, uh, we see this, this message being driven through to us, live wisely. Now, in the Old Testament, and as it continues on in the New Testament, the primary way that people, Jews first and then Christians as well, the primary way they thought about living life was with wisdom literature. We often think of the, the books of Proverbs and Psalms and, and some of these other books as being just nice, pithy little quotes that might be a nice spark in the morning. But really, that's how they thought about living life. Live with wisdom. Even most of the laws given in the Old Testament are given in such a way that they're wisdom literature. The Old Testament law, we think about it as though it's a comprehensive and complete body of law that regulated every way of the Jewish life. And that's not what it is at all. In fact, it's more illustrative. Think along these principles, and this might be a few situations where it's played out And so wisdom, the passing down of wisdom, the discussing with one another about living wisely is how they made decisions, how they thought about life. And the book of Proverbs collects together many of the wise sayings that had been in the tradition of the Jewish people, brings them together in such a way that we can now sit down and read them and think about them. That's why we should read the Proverbs regularly and think about what they're saying, what they're meaning. Living wisely is a message that Paul gives us. But in verse 16, he continues making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, we can make wise decisions, but many of us have so many good things in life that we can do that we now have to not do certain things. We have to actually prioritize. And here the message Paul is giving us is to make choice of the best things in life. What are the best things you can do with your time, the best things you can do with your relationships, the best thing you can do with every aspect of your life, what you read, where you go, who you spend time with? So it's not just simply not doing bad things, not doing evil things. Some do that. We all have that problem. But we need to think also about not just doing neutral things, but spending more of our time doing good things, either good things for others or good things that help grow our own Christian life our own marriages, our own church, our relationships. Some years ago, Stephen Covey wrote a book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he, the first habit, make, uh, begin with the end in mind and put first things first. And he talked about a jar. If you want to fill a jar with a bunch of rocks, the best way to do it is to put the big rocks in it first and then the small rocks around it. And a lot of times, and the, the, the point there, the illustration is the big rocks are the important things in our life, what we know we really should be doing, the things we really know we should be focusing on. The little rocks are those things that might not be bad, but they're kind of distractions. And if you fill your jar with the little rocks first, there won't be any space left for the big rocks. And so what Paul is telling us here, the same thing, make the best choices, put the big rocks in first. And so what are big rocks? Big rocks might be your marriage, Focus on that. Spend time thinking about how do I want to invest myself in my marriage with my children? How do I want to work with my children, invest my time with them, with relationships with others, with my time, my money, whatever it is, how are we investing ourselves? Paul is saying, put first things first. Make sure we do the right things the right way. If you don't plan your time, then someone else will plan it for you. We know that. Uh, If you just let things go then you'll find yourself being pushed around all the time. Now, what we do know is this. The direction and not intention determines your destination. Right? It's not what you intended. It's really the direction that you go. Uh, The direction determines your destination, not your intention. Some years ago when I was in college, my mother and I were driving to Virginia. She would uh, drive with me in the car back there, then fly back. And as we're driving on I-40 going east, 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 so many hundreds and hundreds of miles on miles, we finally reached uh, someplace in Tennessee on I-40 in the middle of the night, after midnight. And I saw a road sign that said Richmond next right. And so, and this was the day before we had GPS. This was the day when you had the big maps that were left in the back seat because you couldn't drive with them. So I saw the sign that said Richmond next right. And so I took it. And so I'm now making the road down towards Richmond, which is not far from my destination. Richmond was only about 150 miles from my destination, so I thought, this can't be a bad road. And then the road gets narrower and narrower. Then we start hitting stop signs, and at some point, it occurs to me, I took the wrong turn. This is not the same Richmond. So I stopped the car, and that's when my mom woke up when the car stopped. She said, where are we? Where are we? And I said, I don't know. I thought we are going to Richmond, and so I got to pull out the map and figure out what I did. And I could backtrack and see the mistake I made. We were on our way to Richmond, Tennessee. Not Richmond, Virginia. And so I took the wrong turn. The direction you go matters. Now, some years later in life, uh, we finally got a GPS. And we all have them on our phones. Uh, We were on our way, uh, my family, Deanna and I and the kids, on our way down to Alabama to go to Gulf Shores for Thanksgiving. And I had driven all night long. I think my son had driven for a time during the day. But it's now evening and we get to northern Alabama or Mississippi, I think, Mississippi. And um, at this point now, because we're closer to Deanne's neighborhood, Deanne, you can drive. And so I'm exhausted, so I'm sitting in the front right passenger seat, half asleep, and she's driving in the dark. It's now probably 10, 11 o'clock. And I hear my GPS go off and it says, recalculating. Now, if you know the message, that means you've gone the wrong way, you're off track now. And so it wakes me up and I look and I say, Deanne, where are you, what'd you do? And she says, The GPS had us going the wrong way. It wanted us to go down here, but I know we need to be on I-65. And he says, no, 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 where are we? And so we finally get, we're on our way now to New Orleans. And he says, follow that, we call them Jeeps, our little buddy, our Jeeps. Follow the man, follow the Jeeps, just follow the direction. So in life, not only does our direction determine our destination, but we have to follow the directions to get there. Now, don't tell Deanne I told you that. She's not here. She's at the women's retreat down in... Can't Camp them, but we have to follow the directions. It will get us there. She has a counter to the story, which was when we finally got to Gulf Shores, the Jeeps told us to go down one road for three miles before we made a left to our, the place we'd rented, and it was now covered with a beach. They had now blocked the road with sand, and so now she said, see, your Jeeps was wrong. Well, that's how it went. <laughs> but we have to follow directions in life, make the important things the important things in life. And so Paul here is talking about that. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. He talks about the days being evil. This is a theme that he's kind of come through Ephesians. Let me just read a few verses uh, for you here that talk about the nature of spiritual warfare. Uh, in chapter two, he talks about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. So we saw this discussion raised in chapter two. In chapter five, he says, uh, do not take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So he warns these believers, be careful what you do. Don't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. And then chapter six, as we'll see in a few weeks, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare becomes this message that Paul has been driving through, and he will conclude Ephesians on that. But he raises it here again by saying that the days are evil. And the figure of speech used here is not that days themselves are evil, but that the days are filled with evil people and evil events. And if you just pay attention to the news and see what's going on in the world around us, we know how true that is. That in fact, there seems to be evil people that make the news every single day. And events that happen that seem beyond our understanding of why people would do such things to one another. There's stories in New York of people who just push you in front of trains. And so now in New York City, in the subway, nobody stands at the edge of the track anymore on the platform. They stand back about 15 feet so they don't get pushed in front of a train. Now, who would do that? We see evil people and evil events all over the place now. And so Paul is warning us to be careful of that. We have to watch out where we go. Uh, the path we take in life, uh, we see different paths, and often the path of darkness is actually well lit at the beginning. And so we can see a path that's well lit and think, well, that looks like a nice way to go. As you get deeper into it, you find out how evil and dark it really was. And so that's why we need the directions from God's word to live our life, to follow it that way. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So don't be foolish. Don't make unwise decisions, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord here is the key phrase and it's not speaking about what we used to talk about God's will for my life. People used to think that and teach and some do that God's will for you is like a dot and you have to find your way to this very particular dot in life or you're out of God's will. So there's one thing, one place, everything is just like this. We find out in life that it's it's difficult. It's more different than that. It's difficult to, to find our sp- uh, place there. But instead we find we have to make wise choices. And we can make a choice between one wise path and another wise path. And it changes the direction of our life forever. For example, what school a person goes to can change the people they meet, what they learn, and how their life ends up. Either school, in God's will, may have been fine. What Paul is talking about here is not the specifics of your individual life, but God's plan for the universe. He's talking about what the great theme of Scripture is how in our lives, God has a plan that's being worked out, a plan that understood the effects of the fall, and God made a way of redemption, and in that, He made promises. He made promises that through Israel, a Messiah would come, that we now see that Messiah in Christ, and that we now can be saved because Christ pays for our sins on the cross. That's what Good Friday and Easter is about. That is the will of God. So what Paul is now reminding us and admonishing us to do is to live consistently with that big plan that God is now working out in history. That's how we're supposed to be living. Again, in verse 17, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. A lot of times people think that their life is a problem to God. And it's not. Instead, he's working in us and through us. And so it's not that our life is a problem. It's that more of our life is a strategy. God is trying to work in and through us to make us into the kind of tool, the kind of person that can serve his needs in this world. Let's take a look at verse 18 briefly. Live life and step with the Spirit. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, we see here this admonition. Now, interpreters talk about what Paul may have meant by this, and there's a variety of explanations, but just on its face, it seems quite clear what he's talking about. Uh, in Ephesus, there was what's called the Dionysian cult. Bacchus was the, the Greek god of wine, uh, a god of celebration, a god of drunkenness. Uh, Michelangelo did a famous uh, sculpture of uh, Bacchus that has him holding uh, a, a, a cup of wine and and looking through the the handle in it at you. And so we see these sort of uh, images that explain what it was like to live in Ephesus at the time. So maybe Paul is warning Christians not to participate in those Dionysian cults any longer. But he's probably talking more simply about the simple fact that we might all guess, and that's that a person that becomes drunk with wine or drunk with alcohol, whatever it may be, finds themselves now drowning out what they think their problems are. So if a person has difficulty sleeping because of anxiety in life, because of problems in life, they think, well, if I can just drink enough, I can go to sleep at night and put myself to sleep. And they're using the alcohol now as a means of calming their heart and their mind. What Paul says is, don't use alcohol to do that. Use the Holy Spirit to calm your mind, your anxiety. So as Jesus said, not one bird falls. I know the, every hair on your head. All of that is telling us that God knows who we are. Christ is there looking out for us. And as believers now, we need to be not filled with spirits, but filled with the spirit. You see, filled with the Holy Spirit and not with alcohol that drowns out our problems to overcome our anxiety or our courage. A lot of people think they're more courageous after they've had a few uh, drinks. They can be Well, that's just because alcohol is a depressant. Alcohol is a depressant that begins to depress the functioning of our mind to be able to think wisely and do things in a proper way. And so we no longer have good judgment. We no longer have good balance or skills. And that we we act like we're courageous, but you're really being foolish. True courage comes, as we saw Peter in Acts chapter 2, when you're filled with the Spirit. In fact, from Acts chapter 2, what did the unbelievers on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, as they saw Peter preaching and see so many people 3000 who became believers that day, what did the unbelievers around them say? That these people are filled with wine. These people are drunk. Peter said, "It's not I'm not drunk, I'm filled with the Spirit." And that became the message Peter had, being controlled and filled by the Spirit instead. So we have to be filled with the Spirit. Now, filling is a theme that's that's used frequently in Ephesians. Let me just read a few verses in chapter 1 verse 23. He talks about the church that's Christ's body as the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's the spirit that fills us in every way. In chapter 3, verse 19, he prays that we may be filled with a measure of all the fullness of God. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe with himself. So this idea of being full and filled permeates Ephesians in chapter four, verse 13, to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And it talks about it here as though we're being filled. Sometimes we think of with the spirit. And so the idea here, as some move off on, is that we are filled with the spirit that now controls our life. And there's there's truth in that, of course. But now they want to see manifestations of certain miraculous spiritual gifts to demonstrate that. But really, the idea here is probably more being filled by the Spirit. Now, there's two passages, this passage and one in Colossians I want to read real quickly. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians is a book very much like Ephesians. You can read them parallel next to each other. And so let me just read a few verses here from Colossians 3 16 and see if it doesn't sound familiar. Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It begins there with, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, as we come to this passage, we see the words are, uh, Be filled with this spirit addressing one another. And so, what he does in Ephesians is to say, be filled with the Spirit. But when he gets to Colossians, he rephrases it as being filled with Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I think what Paul is doing there is telling us that these are essentially the same thing. Being filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the knowledge of Christ, with the knowledge of his word. And so the time that we spend studying and reading the scriptures becomes the sort of things in our life that shapes who we are, how we think, how we respond to circumstances in life. It's using that wisdom that we have. That's the meaning of being filled by or with the spirit as well. We have the spirit that works within us. That's the promise that Jesus gave to us Uh, in John chapter seven. We see that, but, but this is how it kind of works out in our life. And so we have this word that comes to us from Christ. And then number three, live life in a spirit-controlled culture. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always. Let me stop there for a second. We see this addressing one another with three things, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, Some years ago, you know, we asked, what's the difference between these? When we see these three things mentioned, we need to be able to distinguish them, we think. And so I heard an explanation, and that's that we have first what are described here as psalms. Now, we know the book of Psalms, and so I was told that, well, that refers to those words of God revealed in the Old Testament book of Psalms. That's what a psalm is. And that's, in fact, what they originally were. The uh, original meaning of these psalms were were there to be recited and sung one to another. These literally were the song books of the Jews in Israel, and should be for us as well. But then it goes on to speak not only of psalms, but also of hymns. Now, we know what hymns are. We've got a hymn book in front of us. Uh, We don't use it necessarily, but we sing hymns every Sunday. But, you know, most of the hymns in the hymn book were written in the 1800s. And I'm beginning to think now, I wonder if Paul was foretelling that there'd be hymns written 1700 years later. And then spiritual songs, I'm told, well, those are like the songs you hear on Caleb, you know, the new music we hear. So we need a variety. We need songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's how we solve the, 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 the worship wars that were so prominent some years ago. And of course, that's not what it means at all. First, these three things are probably all the same. They're referring to the same idea, different ways of getting at what we do. And Paul is telling these believers in the church, get together and sing to each other. Psalms may be written and sung to God. Hymns may be written and sung towards one another. This morning our theme was uh, the words uh, uh, from Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. Now that you think about the, those words. Those are words being sung from us. Me to you. We're seeing these words to each other. And that's okay. We don't have to change the words to a mighty fortress art thou God. We don't have to sing every song to God. So the singing we do, the message we bring to one another can encompass singing one to each other, these words that have meaning, or singing directly to God. And that's what we have with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All of these, we talk about this entire repertoire of music that we have. And we get away from the battle over the worship songs if we realize that really God is the audience. We are not the direct audience, even when we're singing songs like A Mighty Fortress Is Our God to one another. God is always the audience, and whatever pleases God should be pleasing to us as well. And any song that rightly recognizes who God is and contains lyrics that rightly state that is a good song, even if we don't prefer the the instruments that go along with it. And so now what Paul is talking about is building a culture Building a way of living one with each other so we understand and have a place where we can guard each other, protect each other. And, and it's like we, we build a wall out of each other. Our life is like building a wall, each of us uh, guarding and protecting and supporting one another. And that's what wisdom is. So imagine being in a, a, in a foxhole in a battle and, and you hear that the enemy has 500 soldiers and is five miles away. You can do one of two things in that situation. You can panic, get drunk, and say, that will make the problem go out of my mind and go away if I just get drunk and ignore it. And if you do that, you'll be dead in a few hours. Or you can send out a reconnaissance team and maybe discover that you've got 2,000 friendly soldiers which are only a mile away, and they will be there to surround you, protect you, and fight with you. That's a better way to live. And that's what Paul is saying to these believers in, in Ephesus Find a way of building a culture, one with each other, so you can support and protect each uh, each other. Even as I was driving this morning to church, and I don't know whose house this was, but on Clarkson, there's a house, and somebody's building a a retaining wall. And, you know, because of the, the way our land is built, it's got these waves, and so they want to build a retaining wall so they can flatten out their land. I know what they're doing. My neighbors have done it as well. But as I stopped at the stop sign and looked at the wall, I can see that the wall is not straight or even leaning into the bank, but it's leaning away from it already. They built the wall. You can see it on Clarkson, built, leaning away from the land. Now, I'm not a landscaper, but I do know what a wall is supposed to do. And I know having it leaning away from the pressure is a bad thing. All of us in our Christian life need each other to build a wall leaning into the pressure to hold back what is evil to strengthen one another, and to be that culture, one with each other, that strengthens our community. That's the message that Paul is giving here, and we see this so clearly. It's an illustration of this. I want to read uh, something from Charles Wesley's journal. Uh, Wesley, of course, so powerful in his preaching in the Great Awakening, but he talks about a time when he was leaving Europe and coming to America. And on ship with him were people called the Morovians. He calls them the Germans. But the Morovians, the Morovians were a body of believers that first established themselves in Czechoslovakia in even the 400s. So very early on, and they have a church there called, a city they they called Bethlehem. They built a city called Bethlehem after the place of Judea. And when they left Czechoslovakia and came to America, they went to Pennsylvania, And renamed their new city Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem, Pennsylvania is named after what the Morovians named it. And so uh, Wesley's on ship with these Morovians. Now let me just read what's going on here and, and you'll get the point. So he's on ship and a storm comes up. He says, At seven I went to the Germans, Morovians. I long before observed with great seriousness of their behavior. He saw how these people were always so focused. Of their humility they had given a continual proof. By performing those menial tasks for the other passengers, which none of the English would ever undertake. So the Morovians are serving others. Us Englishmen would never do that for other people. For which they asked no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts and their loving Savior had done more for them. So that's who they were. And every day they had given them occasion of showing meekness, which no injury or no insult could move. If they were pushed, struck or thrown down. They rose again and went away, but no complaint was found in their mouth. There was now an opportunity of trying whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear as well as from that of pride, anger, and revenge. In the midst of them, a psalm wherewith their service began. While they're singing, he says, the sea broke over, split the main sails in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in it between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. So Wesley's telling the story of the ship now in the midst of the Atlantic being beaten by the waves, being broken apart. The Germans are singing, the Morovians are singing, and the English are screaming in fear. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And he answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. Wesley writes, From them I went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him, the Morovians who fear God, and him that fears that does not fear God. At twelve the wind fell. This was the most glorious day which I have hitherto seen. And that's what transformed Wesley's life. In that moment, he saw a band of believers huddled together singing prayers to God in the midst of a storm in which they rightly feared they may die, expect they might die. But the, the Morovians didn't fear it. They trusted God while the English on board were terrified by it. Those who had no knowledge of God or no trust in God. And I think Wesley here illustrates for us something about the value of the Christian life, what it means to be a community here with uh, each other. Um, there's, uh, I thought today I'd illustrate this uh, A little bit. Let me just read to you something else. I don't want to do a lot of reading today, but this is uh, important. Um, Sometimes it's good to read uh, some other things. Uh, There was, uh, we have a new Supreme Court justice, as you know, Justice Brown was confirmed, and she was asked a question. And I'm using this as just one simple point to illustrate the evil we lived in this world. And, and how we respond to it. And so she's asked by Marsha Blackburn, uh, can you tell us what a woman is? Define the word woman. And now the woman who's on the Supreme Court said, I can't. You can't? Not in this context. I'm not a biologist. And she said, I might have to one day in the future do that as a judge to find a woman and I don't want to prejudge the case. And so for, now think about this. For most of uh, of the, the country for many of them I should say they think that's a reasonable response I don't know what a woman is because I'm not a biologist now my mother many years ago told me never call someone stupid don't use the word stupid I'm going to read from Dietrich Bonhoeffer now and mom I'm not this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer it's not me this is Bonhoeffer writing I going to read from a, a letter he, now he Bonhoeffer you may remember was imprisoned in Germany he had uh, uh, become a, a German pastor when he was young. He came to America, in fact. He was uh, worked in a church, Abyssinia Baptist Church in New York, uh, a black Baptist church where he learned uh, Southern spiritual songs. In fact, when Bonhoeffer went back to Germany, he took so many of those black Southern gospel songs with him. Those Negro spirituals are called back to Germany. And even in German churches today, they sing the old southern songs from, south, from southern America. But uh, Bonhoeffer, when the war got started, could have stayed here. But he said, I've got to go back. I can't be a part of rebuilding German life after the war if I'm not there for the trials with the church as it goes through it. And so Bonhoeffer goes back to Germany, back to his home, and is eventually arrested. He walks to the door one day and his father says, the German SS are here to take you away. And he goes to prison. And while in prison for uh, some years, he begins to write prolifically. Now, Bonhoeffer, he died at age 39, and he wrote books that would stand on a shelf probably three feet wide. So a prolific writer. But he writes from prison. And this is one letter that he wrote addressing a variety of topics. But this is what he talks about. And, And this goes to what Jackson, Justice Jackson's talking about. He writes, Stupidity is a more dangerous enemy of the good than malice. One may protest against evil... It can be exposed and, if need be, prevented by the use of force. Evil always carries within itself the germ of its own subversion in that it leaves behind in human beings at least a sense of unease. And so if somebody says, oh, it's okay being drunk with alcohol or being high on drugs, you can always look to evil and say, but look at what it does to you. That's why you shouldn't do it. And that's what Bonhoeffer's talking about. Malice and evil can be looked at, and it carries within itself its own destruction. You can point to it and say, that's why it's bad. Against stupidity, we are defenseless. Neither protest nor the use of force accomplish anything here. Reasons fall on deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply need not be believed. In such moments, the stupid person even becomes critical. And when facts are irrefutable, they're just pushed aside as inconsequential as incidental like the question is this a boy or a girl just push aside the facts in all this the stupid in all of this the stupid person in contrast to the malicious one is utterly self-satisfied and being easily irritated becomes dangerous by going on the attack for that reason greater caution is called for then with the malicious one never again will we try to persuade the stupid person with reasons For it is a senseless and dangerous activity. So Bonhoeffer's pointing to, I hope you see this now, that it's one thing to deal with people who are doing evil things. You can point to evil and explain why it's bad. It's nearly impossible to deal with people who are stupid. And that's what he's getting at. So he writes, if we want to know how to get the better of stupidity, we must seek to understand its nature. This much is certain that it is, in essence, not an intellectual defect, but a human one. There are human beings who are remarkably agile intellect, yet stupid, and others who are intellectually quite dull, yet anything but stupid. We discover this to our surprise in particular situations. The impression one gains is not so much that stupidity is a congenital defect, that you're born stupid, but that under certain circumstances, people are made stupid or that they allow this to happen to them. So we can see smart people who just let themselves be made stupid, who let themselves be sucked into ideas that we have no way of comprehending. How can you believe that? How can you think that way? We note further that people who have isolated themselves from others or who live in solitude manifest this defect less frequently than individuals or groups of people inclined or condemned to sociability. He says there that if you're by yourself, most of these people that, that are advocating these stupid things we see in this world today, they're doing it, they're not, if they were isolated on their own, they would never think this way. It's only when they became part of a culture that they now empty themselves of their own individuality and become stupid. That's what he's saying. That you can only have this way of thinking if they're part of a large group a mass. And so it seemed that this stupidity is perhaps less a psychological than a social problem. It is a particular form of the impact of historical circumstances on human beings a psychological commitment to certain external conditions. When we join groups, whoever those groups may be, when you go to a secular university and you are now taught and everybody else there believes that we can't tell what a man or a woman is, you see, then that's how kids get sucked into it. They're not intellectually frail. They're smart kids. They can do calculus, but they can't tell the difference between a man and a woman because they're told you can't. And that's why they sociability fall into that. And so he continues on. Upon closer observation, it becomes apparent that every strong upsurge of power in the public sphere, be it of a political or of a religious nature, infects a large part, a portion of humankind with stupidity. It would even seem that this is virtually a, soci- a sociological, psychological law. The power of the one needs the stupidity of the others. Bonhoeffer is saying the power of the one, which to him were Hitler and Himmler and Goering, they only gain power because of the stupidity of the masses. But I think Bonhoeffer agreed that we've inverted that now. The stupidity of those in leadership at universities, at Disney, is now being moved by the stupidity of the masses. And so the masses are now moving the leaders, forcing them to make stupid statements. The process at work here is not the particular human capacities, for instance, the intellect, suddenly atrophy or fail. Instead, it seems that under The overwhelming impact of rising power, humans are deprived of their inter-independence and more or less consciously give up establishing an autonomous position towards the emerging circumstances. They no longer think for themselves. He says that, in fact, they become a mindless tool. The stupid person will also be capable of any evil at that same time and capable of seeing that it is evil. So when a person becomes stupid, stops thinking for themselves, becomes blank in their thinking. Now you're a tool that can be used for evil. He finishes uh, these words, yet at this very point it becomes quite clear that only an act of liberation, not instruction, can overcome stupidity. Here we must come to terms with the fact that in most cases a genuine internal liberation becomes possible only when external liberation has preceded it. You have to first get them out of that group that's telling them these things, get them away from that, and have them think on their own. The state of affairs explains why, in such circumstances, our attempts to know that what the people really think are in vain and why under these circumstances, this question is so irrelevant for the person who is thinking and acting responsibly. He finishes, the word of the Bible that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom declares that the internal liberation of human beings to live the responsible life before God is the only genuine way to overcome stupidity. And so if we need to think about what life is in a meaningful way, and, and that's what Paul's message has been here, to live wisely and urgently in concert with the spirit in step with the spirit and with one another as our mutual support. We have to begin to build a culture and, and be a part of a culture, participate in a culture that thinks that way. And in that way, we can invite others, as Bonhoeffer calls them, stupid people out of their world. Now we think stupid is a derogatory. I don't mean to imply uh, that uh, it harm people's thinking that way. What we're talking about is the fact that they're making decisions that are foolish. And that's what we're talking about. Foolish decisions people make. So how can we make better decisions? Uh, It is all about turning our hearts and minds to Christ. It's all about making sure that people know that in Christ we have all that we need. And as we live our lives, as we think about the consequences of the world because of sin That God had a plan and his plan was to send a baby and that baby would grow to be Jesus. And he lived his life in wisdom perfectly before God's law and made a sacrifice for us on the cross so that we might have our sins paid for. He became the curse on the cross himself. That's what the meaning of life is. And that's how we build this life that lives in such a way that we can honor God in our life. And so that's the message Paul has. Uh, Let's stand as we pray. And as we do, let's each look to our own heart and our own mind and think about what God has done for us. Our Father, we thank you for your word that fills us so that as your word becomes a part of our life, we now can think wisely, make decisions that reflect your will. So we pray for each person here that they might be strengthened, each believer strengthened in their Christian life. And for any unbelievers, that they might look to their own hearts and lives and see that in you we have an answer. And answer the questions of life that challenge us.